So in September of 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued what's called the Emancipation Proclamation, and it began with these words. On the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. In time, the news of this freedom swept across the nation. Slaves are free, at least officially, in principle. But the practical living out of that freedom from the slavery was an entirely different thing. Booker T. Washington, who eventually became a a great leader in the African-American community, he wrote in his autobiography about how most slaves responded to the principle of being free and how they lived it out in practice at first. He said this in his autobiography. He said, The wild rejoicing on the part of the emancipated colored people lasted for but a brief period, for I noticed that by the time they returned to their cabins, there was a change in their feelings already. The great responsibility of being free, of having charge of themselves, of having to think and plan for themselves and their children, seemed to take possession of them. It was very much like suddenly turning a youth of 10 or 12 years out into the world to provide for himself. In just a few hours, the great questions with which the Anglo-Saxon race had been grappling for centuries had been thrown upon these people to be solved. These were the questions of a home, a living, the rearing of children, education, citizenship, and the establishment and support of churches. He says, Was it any wonder that within just a few hours the wild rejoicing ceased and a feeling of deep gloom seemed to pervade the slave quarters? To some it seemed that now that they were in actual possession of it, Freedom was a more serious thing than they had expected to find it. After a brief celebration, many former slaves returned to the fields to continue their former lives. You see, even though in principle they were now officially free to own land, to engage in commerce, to go where they wanted, in practice, little actually changed. You see, legal freedom presented slaves with the opportunity to live free lives, but turning that newfound legal status into actual lived experience required, don't miss this, an internal transformation of taking on an entirely new and foreign identity. For many, the fallback and the familiarity of the slavery they had known remained the norm for them. Now, continuing to function like a slave when you've received freedom may seem foolish from the perspective of people like us who have never known that kind of slavery, but but this is exactly the kind of scenario in which many Christians find themselves every day. You see, friends, many Christians choose slavery over freedom every day. You see, even though we believe, even though we believe 
we have been set free by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to live as if free doesn't feel natural to us. It doesn't feel right. We think certainly the sinlessness of Jesus that justifies us before God, it has to be earned, right? It has to be kept secure by my own personal goodness, right? At least that's how we feel about it. How could something as amazing as the sinlessness of Jesus Christ be given to us for free? And so, so we go on through life, we struggle inwardly, protesting, sort of functionally protesting, against the grace that we've been offered in Jesus. And so what many Christians do, what many of us do, is that we vacillate, we go between these two poles of giving into uh, the well-worn grooves of self-condemnation that we've learned, on the one hand, and also sort of functionally inventing ways to feel like we are worthy. On the other. We have this inner dialogue of self-condemnation, and then we have this outer way of operating with people that that tries to to get worthiness from our circumstances. And this sort of back and forth between self-condemnation and seeking worthiness, it happens every day for many Christians, often moment by moment, often many times a day. I am a worm. I am valuable. I am terrible. I am amazing. And if you're anything like me, you end up with your head on the pillow at the end of the day going, no, I, no, I am a worm. It's, it's final. It's decided. Lord, help me. Amen. <laughs> Turning our newfound legal status as free, saying yes to Jesus in principle, that's easy. To live, to live in practical terms, from the fullness of a Christ-centered identity in practice, less easy. You see, friends, this new freedom and identity in Christ that we're offered is harder to wrap your head around in practice from day to day than we are initially aware when we say yes to Jesus in the first place. And I think a big part of that struggle for us is because our salvation is rooted in an amazing and yet counterintuitive truth that takes a while to get used to, but we must fully embrace this. We must fully embrace this truth. The sinlessness of Jesus that justifies us before God is something that is received, it's not achieved. This is foundational to what Christianity is. The sinless life of Jesus that he lived for me, that justifies me before God, is something I receive. It's not something I achieve. You see, the scriptures say it's something that's given. It's not something you earn. Romans 3.24 says this. It says we are justified. We're made right with God. We are justified by his grace. And then it says, as a gift. In Romans 5, 15 to 17, five times in three verses, Paul says salvation is a gift. In Ephesians 2, 8, Paul calls the entire process of being saved, the entire process of salvation, he calls it the gift of God. You see, friends, this life that we are given because of the perfect and the sinless life and death of Jesus is so radically new, it's so radically different and amazing. It is nothing short of an entirely new and entirely different state of being and thinking and understanding. It's an entirely new worldview. It's a new way of perceiving yourself in the world. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says you're a new creature, a new creation. And this is hard for us because 
This new reality about who God says we are in Jesus, it flies in the face of everything around us, which screams, you've got to earn it. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Freedom isn't free. So because of those voices, it's not an easy nor an instant transition to turn the principle of new life in Christ into the practice of new life in Christ. So in the New Testament book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is well acquainted with this, this tension, this difficult transition from slave to free, from old you to new you. So in Romans 6, 1, where we'll turn here in just a second, in Romans 6, 1 and following, he gives us some really helpful and practical advice for how to more fully identify with Christ from day to day. This isn't just a come up once, get dunked once, say yes to Jesus once kind of thing. This is a daily death to self by which we more fully identify with Christ. And he uses baptism as the picture for what this is supposed to look like from day to day. So let's study the Bible together, starting in Romans 6. Let's jump in at verse 1 uh, with me here. A lot of thick, good Bible stuff to talk about here. So uh, if you'll track with me closely and pay good attention, we'll make sense of this stuff here in Romans because Paul is not always easy. So he starts off being a little difficult to understand. Verse 1, he says, two rhetorical questions. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So we're obviously picking this up in the middle of a larger ongoing conversation. Paul is asking those two questions He's asking those questions to uh, people in his day who objected to preaching grace as a free, unearned, received kind of gift because those objectors feared that grace like that, if it was too free, if it was like like, like too much a received thing that we don't have to earn, they feared that that would weaken Christ's work and that people would begin to feel like, well, if I've got grace to cover my tracks, I might as well send it up till heaven, y'all. So, so Paul's objectors here, they were worried um, that if Paul was too generous with this grace idea, it, w- it would reflect poorly on Jesus, and people would just start sending it up all over the place. So, so Paul asks their questions here at the beginning by saying, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he says, verse 2, he answers the question himself, by no means. No way, that's not how it works with this new life in Christ. And then he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's a way of saying, how can dead people who are no longer alive sin? The old person's dead. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Uh, I'm I'm calling this today the sort of godfather outlook on sin. Um, If you've never seen it, don't. but there's this part in the movie where one of the family members uh, says to somebody else, you're dead to me. <laughs> you're nothing to me. Uh, this is sort of the Godfather outlook on sin. Uh, we are supposed to functionally be saying, sin, you're dead to me. You're nothing to me. You're not as exciting as you once been. You don't make me alive like you once to. The empty promises that I found out don't do anything for me. Eh, I can do fine without it. You're dead to me. So Paul is saying, how can people who have said to sin, you're dead to me. Sin is dead to me. It doesn't hold anything for me. How can we, those who no longer breathe that air of sin, how can we be made alive by it? And then he says, or or do you not know? Do you not yet realize? Verse 3. Don't you know that all of us 
who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, meaning we were identified with Christ in a way that means the old way, the old us that made us alive even though we were actually dead. The old us that was made alive by sin dies. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, because of that baptism into Christ Jesus. We were buried with him by baptism into death. The old self is sort of drowned. It's like, think of it in the, it's in the bottom of the baptistry. It's, it's still there. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we also, might walk in newness of life. So when we go down, when we go down, the old self drowns and dies. And when we come up, the new self lives. So think of baptism in two ways. Baptism is a, is a tomb for the old you, and it's a womb for the new you. It's a tomb for the old self, it dies, and it's a womb for the new you to become who God called you and created you to be. We'll get to that in the second part of the sermon here in a bit here. So we're buried and we're raised with Christ. The identification with Christ in baptism as a symbol of that fullness of identification, it's so close and complete and so identified with him that his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And then notice what it says at the end of verse 4 here. It says, in order that we also might walk in newness of life. He's saying that you are identified with Christ so that you can walk in freedom from sin. This is an important point to get. You see, freedom from sin doesn't happen before you are identified with Christ in baptism. Freedom from sin doesn't happen for us before you are identified with Christ. It happens as a consequence of being identified with Christ. When we are baptized into his death, his death becomes ours, and the power of sin is broken for us, and we can walk into newness of life. And if we are fully identified with, and we are incorporated into Christ, such that his death becomes ours, then also his resurrection becomes ours. Paul makes that point in the next verse. Look at this, verse 5. For if we have been united, he says that word united twice, the identification with him in baptism is that close, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, verse 6, we know that our old self, the old man, was crucified, killed with him, for the purpose, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This is an important point to understand here. In order that our sinful nature might be starved to death, and sin would become dead to us. And so that we would no longer be enslaved to it, he says. So, so we become identified with Christ, pictured by baptism, so fully, so completely, that his death is ours, his resurrection is ours. And that frees us then. That frees us to walk in newness of life and to no longer be enslaved by sin, like he says here in verse 6. Here's a summary statement, verse 7, into this section for us. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So the principle of freedom here, 
the principle of freedom here that Paul establishes in these first seven verses in Romans 6 is this. <laughs> when you identify with Christ in baptism, his death and resurrection become your death and your resurrection. And you are made new in a way that means that you recognize that sin no longer animates you. It no longer makes you alive. It's dead to you. It's not that great. You're now free to say that because the power of sin is broken. Because of Jesus, sin can be dead to you. Now, most Christians at this point are like, <laughs> but I don't, I don't feel like I'm free from sin. Like, I don't feel like I'm walking around in this newness of life all day being like, sin holds no power over me. I'm still struggling with sin in this way. And, and, and honestly, frankly, I often choose it over pleasing God. We begin to ask questions like, did my baptism not take or something? Do I need to get dunked again? Those kinds of feelings and questions uh, all happen to us in this messy middle of the newness of life not yet happening as it's supposed to or we want it to or we don't feel yet. Which means, congratulations, you're like every other Christian who's ever lived. You see, being set free from the power of sin isn't the same as being sinless. Being set free from the power of sin because of Jesus isn't the same as being perfect. Because we are justified by Christ, we are counted righteous before God, doesn't mean we no longer sin. It just means that Christ's once for all death and resurrection, they free us up to discover the fullness of Christ's perfection and to live that out in our lives. That's huge, friends. Christ's once for all death and resurrection, they free us to discover day by day in that identity with Christ the fullness of His perfections that become more and more the case in us. So it's more of Jesus, less of you. That's what this Christian life, this fullness of identity with Christ, day by day, is meant to be. A relationship with Him where it's less of you, more of Him. Some of us, friends, need to have ongoing funerals day to day with our old self, with our conceptions of our expectations of our lives that have little resemblance to the vision God has for you that is a hundred times better than that little piddly vision for yourself you keep holding on to. That's what it means to die to self. It means to say, forget the old me. Lord, more of Jesus in me, please. I open myself to that. Which means, Paul says here, you have to have a mind shift, a mindset change. You have to think of yourself in this new way and begin to, to live out of that. Which means this. Which means the power of sin being broken means you can now begin to plumb the endless, the endless depths of an infinite God who is indescribably perfect beyond our greatest thoughts of Him. And in doing that, in plumbing the depths of, depths of an infinite God who is beyond our greatest descriptions, you can become more like Him. You will love Him more. You will want to do more of what He does. You will want to be more of what comes from His heart and reflects His beauty and His majesty. And in so doing... <laughs> You will bring Him glory and you will bring yourself joy. 
Joy is found in having a daily funeral for your piddly human flesh-bound conceptions of your vision for your life and saying yes at the beginning of the day to learning who God is and loving His goodness and living for His glory. So what does that discovery of the fullness of Christ and that, that newness of life look like as an ongoing practice? Jump in, verse 11. 11 through 18, really good stuff here from Paul in Romans 6. The ongoing practice of this newfound freedom. He says this, jump in 11. So you also must consider yourselves... Underline, highlight, circle those two words there. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So think of yourselves as you already are in Christ. You must reckon, you must count, you must think of yourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Which is to say that this trusting in Christ thing is a mindset. It's a, it's a shift of thinking, Paul is saying. So, so have this new mindset in you that considers sin as dead to you and God's goodness as alive to you. Meaning, from day to day, you can say, the, the power of sin in me has been broken and I say no to it. I am dead to it. I am now free to love and to be satisfied with what comes from the heart of God as what makes me alive. This is how the message translates uh, 6.11, this mind shift change. It says this, uh, From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language. It means nothing to you. God speaks your native, your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. Friends, the person who is living in fullness of identity with Christ from day to day is hanging on, hanging on every word from God. They are saying to themselves, as a part of this mind shift, this mindset change, they're saying, God's heart is what feeds me now. God's goodness, that's the air I breathe now. So in practical terms, verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it control you to make you obey its passions. You have the power because, because God is making you alive, because you are awake to his heart to speak to you. You are now in control of your body and you can say, sin, you don't even get a vote here. You're not the boss of me. I don't have to make, uh, make my body obey you. So don't present your members, your, your body, verse 13, don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, for sinful and selfish purposes, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God, your body to God, as instruments for righteousness. You have a new Lord. You've said yes to hearing from Him from day to day. So you are now open to having your, your, your body, your, your, your life, your body available to God for His purposes and not your own. Because you trust that. Because you actually trust that doing that brings you joy in Him glory. For sin will have no dominion over you, verse 14, since you're not under law but under grace. And then he asks the, the same two questions like at the beginning. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Again, he says, by no means, no way. And look, look at this practical stuff here. This is great, verses 16 and following. He says, or do you not know that if you present yourselves, if you offer yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... 
then you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, Paul says, this is really key here, Paul says you are a slave to whatever you obey. You are a slave to whatever or whomever you obey and offer yourself to. You become a slave when you offer yourself in obedience to someone or something. Point of information here. (laughs) It's important to realize that in... Uh, in the New Testament conception of slavery, we're talking about something different than America's past. Because Paul is not actually speaking entirely rhetorically here. He's speaking to people who in that New Testament time might have been slaves or servants. And, and, and so back in the New Testament world, a biblical conception of, of slavery is, is different than we think of. We think of it as, as a race-based thing and for life that there's no choice in. Um, but, but the biblical New Testament conception of that is a little different because what would happen is people would offer themselves, same word Paul uses here, they would present themselves to a temporary master uh, for a certain period of time voluntarily to pay off a debt. So he's saying here, you are a slave to whomever or whatever you obey or, or give yourself or present yourself to. And you... You once obeyed sin. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Look at that there in verse 18. That that last part of that verse is fantastic there. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So friends, what this means is three things for us. Three words. We are now perfectly free slaves. Perfectly free slaves of righteousness. We are perfectly so because Christ's perfect life life and death on the cross, they work as a substitute for ours to complete what is lacking in us, to make up for our sin and rebellion against God perfectly because Jesus was perfect for us. We are free because the power of sin to condemn us is broken by Christ on the cross. It is taken on. We are identified with that in our baptism such that His death and His resurrection are ours and we are now likewise free. And we are slaves because now, by the presence of God's Spirit in us, we love to offer ourselves as instruments of the righteousness of God, to be used for His purposes. Friends, to identify with Christ as a perfectly free slave means that you are not wrong. According to Paul, according to the Scriptures, you are not wrong to count yourself, to think of yourself, to reckon yourself from day to day in practice and to act from the truth that Jesus Christ now actually lives in you. You see, what Jesus wants to do is a much, much bigger conception than perhaps we thought when we 
first said yes to Jesus in, in, in Bible school or maybe came down this aisle and were baptized uh, recently. It, it, it's a much bigger deal with implications that continue. To identify with Christ means He wants to take over your life. He wants to take over your life and to do away with the old you and to replace that with Him. This is what it means to identify with Christ. To think of yourself as a place where Jesus is day by day taking over. This can feel a little bit scary. We go back to that familiar stuff we know about ourselves. And we hold on to that. And so we don't give in to this process of trusting that what God has for us in the future is better than who we've been. It's a process we need to open ourselves to. C.S. Lewis said this well. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. Listen to this. You knew, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But then he begins to knock about this house in a way that hurts and that doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth, what on earth is he up to? The explanation is, that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing up a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and to live in it himself. Friends, what Christ is doing with us through the Spirit of God is making us in entirely new ways into a place where he can live forever. This is what it means to buy in to Jesus working in us. It means opening yourself up to that and saying, yes, I trust it. And also, friends, it means when you're tempted to condemn self or maybe to seek uh, to invent new ways to feel worthy, Remember that Christ is in you, always inviting you day by day to that internal transformation of taking on an entirely new identity as a perfectly free slave. Let's pray, friends. Father, forgive us for holding on to the visions of our lives that we are sure will bring us joy. but that in the end are empty promises based on our own selfish conceptions of our lives. Father, teach us day by day to say yes to what you want to do in us. That we would uh, think of ourselves and reckon ourselves and act from this amazing truth, Lord, that you've given us power over sin in our lives because of Jesus breaking that power on the cross which made effective his perfect life for us so Father we want to be men and women we want to be 
marriages and families. We want to be people who day by day continue to say yes to what you want to do in us so that we would continually treasure uh, the work of Christ for us so we would say yes to the work of your Son in us so that we would be used, Lord, as instruments of righteousness uh, so that we would have an ongoing relationship with you day by day where we are fed by you. That what comes from your heart would be the air we breathe. Lord, animate us by your Spirit so that your glory would be made known. So the people would come to know your Son, Jesus, through us. So that this body of believers would be strengthened. So that we would teach kids what it means to follow Jesus. So that we would see your vision take hold. And we would experience the joy you've promised. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.